Thank you, Nathan. It, it is simply a delight uh, to be here. It's a delight to return here um, after last year and being so provoked by you. When, you. when you go to a worship conference, it tends to be attended by people who love to worship. And um, that is certainly the case here. And so it's an honor to stand with you. Uh, just if I can say one, one thing about uh, on behalf of those of us from Sovereign Grace, especially those of us who came over from the States, um, you know, we, we didn't come feeling we had anything at all, uh, honestly, special to offer. But we do count it a great privilege to come alongside you and to, as it were, lift up your arms as you seek to follow and serve the Savior in this country. And I've told a number of people this, but uh, I carry this country in my heart in a particular way. We were praying this. We were praying this the other night. I, I just don't believe that God is going to allow f- 450 years of gospel seeds to lie fallow. Um, and someone was asking me yesterday, it was a pastor, says, so, I mean, from a distance, what, what is your perception of the sort of the spiritual climate? And I said, well, I don't really know. I said, I am from a distance. But I, I will say this, I... I don't think my perspective is necessarily accurate because I know so many pastors and so many Christians. I know so many gospel people in this country. And so I have great faith for what God wants to do in this country. I don't think it's naivete. I don't think it's well-wishing. So we pray for you, and it's an honor to be here with you. So thank you. Um, Please turn your Bibles to Isaiah Book of Isaiah, chapter 6. Book of Isaiah, chapter 6. I'm going to begin reading from verse 1. And on the heels of what Kevin just shared with us, let's remember this is the Word of God. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. The train of his robe filled the temple. And above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I'm lost. I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. 
And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And then I said, Here am I, send me. Let's pray. Father, what a joy to gather together. What a joy to lift our voices to you. What a privilege to gather now around your word once again. Father, would you please speak now through your word? We give you our attention. We give you our minds. We give you our hearts. And we pray, Holy Spirit, you would be active now to open our eyes to see wonderful things from your law and ultimately to see more of the glory of God in the face of Christ. In Jesus' name, we pray. Amen. On October 14, 2012, the unthinkable happened. On that day, something happened that had never happened before. On that day, the whole world was captivated by an unsurpassed act of daring. On that day, an Austrian named Felix Baumgartner stepped into a capsule attached to a 550-foot-tall helium balloon. For almost three hours, he ascended. Three hours till he reached a height of 128,000 feet, 24 miles above the earth. And then Felix Baumgartner opened a hatch, climbed out on a ledge, and jumped. <laughs> Unthinkable. During a four-minute, 20-second fall, he reached a speed of 833 miles an hour. He became the first human to travel unassisted faster than the speed of sound. He broke the sound barrier. His was the highest jump. His was the longest free fall ever. I don't know if you remember that. Our whole country was watching this. You could see it on YouTube. You could hear his words. Uh, the, the world looked on at Baumgartner's courage, his maybe folly, his craziness. His, but it was captivated by the spectacle of this death-defying daredevil. The world breathed a, a collective sigh of relief when he touched down to the earth safely. Couldn't believe it. When the media converged on Baumgartner, you couldn't be helped but to be struck by what he said. His, what was this man going to say having done this unsurpassed feat of daring? His words were surprising. His words were not the words of a braggart. He didn't draw attention to his courage or his skill or his accomplishment. Instead, 
Remarkably, his words were reflective. In an interview, he said the following. When I was standing there on top of the world, you become so humble. You do not think about breaking records anymore. You do not think about gaining scientific data. The only thing you want is to come back alive. One reporter asked him, what were your final words before jumping? And this is what he said. I know the whole world is watching now, and I wish the world could see what I see. Sometimes you have to go really high to see how small you are. <laughs> to the world, Baumgartner was, was a hero. He was a daredevil. He was courageous. But to Felix Baumgartner, he was a man who faced a reality bigger than himself. And when he did, he was humbled. And when he did, he was changed. Now, as unthinkable as Baumgartner's jump was, it's actually similar to an experience that every true Christian is meant to have. In Isaiah chapter 6, the, the prophet had an encounter that was somewhat similar to Baumgartner's. He too faced a reality greater than himself. He too was humbled. He too was changed. But as we know, the reality that Isaiah faced was infinitely greater. The, the effect on Isaiah was far more profound. The effect on Isaiah was far more transforming. Now, we are here exploring the topic of worship, particularly corporate worship, and my assigned title was Gathering to Rehearse the Gospel. Now, there's no single verse in the Bible that, that it explicitly commands us, gather to rehearse the gospel. There's not a single imperative in Scripture that tells us to do this. However, there are many texts that imply this or assume this or provide the rationale for this. In fact, the logic of the entire New Testament leads inexorably to this. Now, you might think, well, this is a particular, particularly unusual text, Jeff, to choose for this. After all, it is an Old Testament text. Uh, it records... Uh, a prophetic call, in fact, the call of perhaps the greatest Old Testament prophet. It is not even an Old Testament worship service, much less the experience of an ordinary Israelite, much less the experience of an ordinary Christian. But here's what I want us to look at. It, it contains realities that are relevant. It contains realities that are supremely relevant for, for every Christian and as a result are exceedingly relevant for our worship gatherings together as Christians. This text reveals realities about God and realities about humanity in relationship with God. These are realities that are fundamental. These are realities that, that are decisive. They are realities that are enduring. This text sets the very contours for relating to God. God, God exists in a particular way. We exist in a particular way, and certain things happen when the two come together. An encounter between the two, between God and humanity, calls for certain things. An encounter 
between God and humanity demands certain things. And that's what makes this text relevant for our worship as Christians. Although this is an Old Testament text, these realities are fundamental for our worship as Christians. They are the very source of our worship. They should inform, I would argue, the focus of our worship. They should inform the content of our worship as we gather. So I want to explore this text to see what it reveals about God what it reveals about us, and what it has to tell us about our worship. This, the, the text really takes us on a journey. We're going to, to accompany Isaiah on a journey this morning, a journey that, that changed his life, a journey that transformed his ministry. It, it's a journey that, like Felix Baumgartner, took him high to see how small he was. But it didn't leave him there. And my prayer is that by accompanying Isaiah on this journey, we too might be, see, might be brought to see how small we are. We too will be transformed. We'll, we'll see similar things about God, similar things about ourselves. And by the grace of God, our worship will be in, informed, maybe even transformed. So quickly, Isaiah 6, as you probably are aware, a strategic chapter for the book of Isaiah, a strategic chapter for the prophet himself. Chapters 1 through 5 have introduced a serious problem. They have described in in sweeping terms uh, the spiritual failure of God's people. These people have taken God for granted. They have squandered the grace they have received. They have forfeited the privileges that they had as the people of God. And so at the outset of this book, a massive problem has been introduced. How can Judah, the people of God, how can Judah in their sin and their rebellion, how can they become the holy people of God? How can a sinful Proud, self-centered, God-ignoring, grace-despising people get right with God. Isaiah 6 is the answer to that dilemma. And it's, the, it's an answer that only God can provide as he takes Isaiah on this journey. Now, we're going to look at this journey in three stages. Three stages of this journey that transform Isaiah, that address this Dilemma. It's, it's, it's also for Judah going to address its dilemma. But pay attention, because this isn't just about Isaiah. This isn't just about Judah. Every one of us faces this dilemma. All right, so let's look at the first stage of this journey, the first part. Number one, a vision of God's character. A vision of God's character. Isaiah first gives us the context for the vision, verse 1, in the year that King Uzziah died. Now, we can sort of read that as sort of, you know, historical uh, data, but it's a phrase that is pregnant with, with meaning. King Uzziah had reigned in Judah for 52 years much much longer than than any president any prime minister ever had ever could it's a period of it was a period of prosperity it was a period of of expansion they had known no king like Uzziah since Solomon 
Um, but his passing signaled something. It signaled that a change was coming. There, there were threats on the horizon as Assyria rose to prominence. There was, there was an increasing spiritual apathy. Even Uzziah had had a failure of pride near the end of his life. You can read about that. The things in which Judah had invested their hopes were fading. It was an unsettling time for the people. It was an uncertain time. It was a, it was a foreboding time, really. But what Isaiah needed was, was not just a change in circumstances. You, perhaps you could be, you're, you're here today and, and maybe you can relate. Maybe you're in a place of uncertainty. Your, your circumstances are unsettling. Um, things in which you have invested your hope have failed you. If so, and we're all there at times, what we need is not fundamentally a change in circumstances. Like Isaiah, what we need is a fresh vision of God and his character and his purposes. And that's what this text provides. And as we behold this vision, everything about it is, is stunning. All of its elements are gripping. This, this text is calculated to overturn our categories, to, to disrupt our apathy, to really to awaken us to reality. So what does Isaiah see? Well, first of all, I saw the Lord. I saw the Lord and the whole picture paints God in his exalted sovereignty. He is, verse one, sitting on a throne. He's reigning. Do you see the significance? Uzziah had died, but the real throne, oh, it remains occupied. And that reign is supreme. He is high and lifted up. He towers over heaven and earth in transcendent splendor. But strangely, the only other detail here is this unusual statement, the the hem of his robe. The hem of his robe filled the temple. There's no crown there's no, there's no scepter. There's no medallion around his neck. There's no jewels on his tunic. It, just the hymn. It, it's, it's as if Isaiah can't peer higher than God's feet. He can only spot the hymn. It, it's reminiscent of when Moses and the elders ascended to Mount Sinai uh, in Exodus chapter 24. It says there, they saw the God of Israel. And you're just poised for this amazing description. But the only other description that is given, they saw the God of Israel and there was under his feet a pavement of sapphire. That's it. The most lofty vision can barely penetrate to the bottom of God's feet. That's as high as Isaiah could see. The picture is then intensified, isn't it? We get a glimpse of the heavenly attendants in verse 2. I'll, I'll have to admit it here. My friends would know this. I'm a shameless Anglophile. Um, as a child, I was captivated by the pageantry of your queen and her guards and her carriages. No one does pomp and ceremony like the British. But there's an effect, isn't there? Uh, the honor of the queen is magnified by those attending her, arrayed in colorful uniforms with horses and carriages, soldiers, 
That's the effect here. Because think about it. God exists in unapproachable light. You think God's enough, but no, there are heavenly attendants surrounding him. That's the effect. It enhances his honor and glory. And we see in verse 2, seraphs, seraphim, the, the only use of this term in the Bible. It's more of a description than it is a title. It means fiery ones, burning ones. So God's throne is surrounded by these flame-like creatures. And they, they illustrate for us how one is to respond in the presence of God. Look at verse 2. Above him stood the seraphim. Each one had six wings. With two, he covered his face. With two, he covered his feet. With two, he flew. So two wings to cover their face, to, to shield them from unsurpassable glory. Two wings to cover their feet, their, their creatureliness and their unworthiness laid bare before God's ineffable holiness. Two wings, they fly in service of their king. And, and, and don't picture sort of round, plump cherubs floating around the throne. Think rather fighter jets. F-22s shaking the very ground that Isaiah stands on. Though their eyes and their feet are covered, their mouths are not. They, they are ever praising the one that they're serving, ceaselessly are erupting in worship in, in the presence of, of sheer deity. It's, it's an, we have their words here. Don't you want to read across, holy, holy, holy? Yeah, we got a song that says that. No, it's like... Tuning your radio and, and catching the frequency of heaven. Hearing what's going on, what's going on before the throne. And what we hear is one of the most essential reports in Scripture of God's nature. You know the verse, one call to another in this antiphonal praise. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. That word holy carries the, the general idea of, of separateness. It refers to God's distinctiveness, his distinctiveness from all other things, from all other reality. In, in all of everything, there's only two categories. In all reality, there's two categories. There is God and there is everything else. And so God is different than everything else. He is unlike anything in creation. We, we, we might say God's holiness is, is God's, God's godness. The, the utter, I, I'm not even going to come up with words, the, the utter transcendence of his nature and his character and his actions, his, his majestic, unapproachable, otherness, exalted, come up with a, I just, you just stop because it, he's just not like anything. He's holy. And he's not just holy, he's holy, 
holy, holy. He's holy to the third power. Hebrew uses repetition. There's not a superlative in Hebrew. It uses repetition to express a superlative. So you read something like gold, gold. It means pure gold. Well, only here in Scripture is a threefold adjective. Isaiah, Isaiah has to gr- invent a grammatical structure to somehow communicate the, the inexpressible. God is utterly, uniquely, completely, transcendently other. And and he's not just locked up in heaven, confined to a vision. The whole earth is filled with his glory. All of, if we have eyes to see it, all of creation bristles with marks of God's majesty. All of history is the story of his revealing of his glory to sinners. All created reality testifies to the glorious God who delights to display his glory. He reveals his perfections in all that he has made. The whole earth is full of it. And Isaiah's eyes are are awakened to this glory. And the effect, verse 4, is to shake the very doorways, preventing Isaiah's entry, to to fill the house with smoke, obscuring Isaiah's sight. Do you see what's happening? The prophet senses and experiences his exclusion from the presence of the utterly holy one. He's not in familiar territory. He's not where he's supposed to be. He's excluded. It's foreign. He's frightened. Now, we'll see more of this journey, but but it begins here. God's transcendent holiness is of the essence of his nature. It's not a mask he puts on. And then in the New Testament, he sort of strips it off and say, no, no, I was just kidding. That's not really me. I'm much more tame. I'm, I'm much more unthreatening. I'm much more relatable. That was all just for the Old Testament as a mask. No, he's inherently... He's eternally, he's, he's gloriously other and holy. It makes you want to ask, ask myself, how familiar am I with Isaiah's depiction of this holy God? How, how recently have I been in touch with and aware of and alert to God's absolute, transcendent, blazing otherness. Think about your Sundays. The perception of the people in, in, in your church. How does the notion that we have of God when we enter and we begin to sing and we leave. How does our notion of God, how does it comport with Isaiah's notion of God? Do people in our meetings, from our songs, from our exhortations, from the worship leader, supremely in our preaching, do they ever encounter this kind of, of God? I mean, whatever joyful praise we sing, and we should sing joyful praise, are we singing it when we're clapping and we're happy? Are we still at those moments singing to this kind of God? He doesn't change when 
the key changes. Now, this text doesn't give us a formula. It doesn't give us a formula for some liturgical element or or mandate that every Sunday we must linger long and exclusively over God's otherness and holiness. But it does reveal a central aspect of God's character, one that is often portrayed in Scripture, one that is everywhere assumed in Scripture, one that the very logic of Scripture and the logic of the gospel demands. So if we are to authentically worship God, we must encounter him in his transcendent holiness. We must never lose sight of that. And when God opens our eyes to see something of that, something of his holiness, something happens. Something happens. And that's the next part of Isaiah's journey. The first stage was a vision of God's glory. The second stage is this, an act of God's mercy. An act of God's mercy. Having seen God with new eyes, Isaiah now sees himself with new eyes. And what he sees terrifies him. This is the first time in the book that Isaiah speaks for himself. And at least in English, his words might seem simply like a cry of fear He says in verse five, woe is me, for I am lost. But this isn't merely fear. This isn't a sort of a visceral, primal scream. It's, you know, don't picture people running away, screaming at the top of their lungs as Godzilla marches through. This isn't Isaiah going, ah! In the previous chapter, with God's indictment, of the nation of Judah, Isaiah had pronounced woes upon the wicked in Judah, pronouncements of God's righteous judgment. And so in chapter 5, we read these various pronouncements. I'll just paraphrase them for you. Woe to the greedy who spend their life piling up possessions and stepping on others to do so. Chapter 5, verse 8. Woe to those who party their life away while ignoring God. Verse 11, woe to those who rip people off, make a mockery of justice. Verse 18, woe to the proud, always demand their own way, always think they're right. Verse 21, those are paraphrases. But all different forms of rebellion, all ways that Judah treated God as unholy. And that elicits something from a holy God. It elicits woes. It elicits pronouncements of righteous judgment. And so when we turn the page to chapter 6, Isaiah, this prophet of righteousness, views himself now in light of God's holiness. And he turns his prophetic gaze upon himself and he cannot help but cry, woe to me. The moment he saw himself in light of God's holiness, the moment he measured himself not by the rest of Judah, not by all these sinners, but by the ultimate standard of of holiness, he was exposed. His true status revealed. He too was culpable. He too was guilty. He too deserved judgment. And now he calls God's judgment down upon himself. That's what's happening. And the effect... 
the effect on him was, was devastating. Woe to me, I, for I am lost. This is Isaiah. I'm just lost. Lost here means ruined, cut off, destroyed. In, in the face of God's holiness, he, he feels, I, I just, I can't, I can no longer exist. I'm, I'm, I'm coming undone. I'm coming apart at the scenes. He's crushed under the weight of both existential and moral separateness from the holy. And he realizes, too, he goes on, I'm, I'm a man of, of unclean lips. The prophet, well, he's a man of unclean lips. His, word, his words giving expression to what's in his heart. Even this great prophet, one of God's choicest servants, recognized that his sin was not merely occasional. His sin was pervasive. Every earthly thing in which Isaiah trusted was destroyed. Every shred of righteousness he depended upon was revealed as bankrupt. In in confronting this this all-glorious, all-sufficient God, he was confronted with his own insufficiency and unworthiness before this God. And instead of a pious worshiper, he sees himself as an unworthy intruder trespassing in a realm in which he did not belong. Now, instead of denouncing others, as in chapter 5, he identifies himself with others. I dwell with a people of unclean lips. Purifying vision of God powerfully, frighteningly, but mercifully stripped away any vestige of self-centeredness, self-righteousness, self-importance. It reminds me of when the claws of Aslan just tear the scales off of Eustace in the voyage of the dawn treader. It's painful, digs deep. But it's merciful. That's what's happening to Isaiah. His concluding words explain it. Verse 5. For for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. He began by mourning the King, the death of King Uzziah. But but now he's seen the the real King. And, And maybe for the first time, his approaching authentic Worship. Whatever else worship is, at its core, it is a response to God. It is a response to what God has revealed about himself. Apart from God revealing himself, there is no true worship. There is only idolatry. And so true worship must begin with a grasp of God. True worship puts us in touch with who God really is. 
Not, not our intuitions of him, not our wishes about him, but his, his true nature, his true attributes. And it's that which is meant to elicit our worship responses. It's not our, our music or our lighting or our atmosphere or, or any techniques that, that makes a worship moment attractive. None of that is meant to elicit worship. Only God's revelation elicits worship. Now, there's nothing wrong with creativity. There's nothing wrong with excellence. But none of those things must obscure the unveiling of God's word. As Mike said, we must get out of the way. None of that must obscure the revelation of who he is. None of that must overtake the apprehension of him in his word as Kevin was teaching us. So you see what's happening here. Something happens when people approach this kind of God. We go, we have to go really high to see how small we are. And that's what we see in verse 6. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar, and he touched my mouth. So as frightening as the scene is, and it's a frightening scene, it's actually a wonderful mercy. What is it telling us? It tells us this. God doesn't reveal his holiness and our sin to condemn us or to destroy us. He does it to rescue us. The unveiling of God's holiness was not like some, you know, ticked off superhero strutting around, showing off. It was an act of unspeakable grace. And to perceive that grace, notice this, Isaiah does not appeal for mercy. He never says, have mercy on me. He doesn't ask God to send a seraph. God takes the initiative. And what happens brings hope. To what had been Isaiah's despair, it also points as a pattern to Judah's hope. How this nation, soon to be judged, can receive God's mercy. And not just Judah, it points to our hope as well. What's the solution for the dilemma? The imagery is all important. What is it? A burning coal taken from an altar. Taken from an altar, do you see? A sacrifice has taken place. Something has died. Blood has been shed. And the effects of that sacrifice are applied directly to Isaiah. Now that, forget for a minute that we know the rest of the Bible. (laughs) That solution, it's not the solution that we typically are drawn to. It's not the solution that we naturally think of. Left to ourselves, our heart, the human heart, tends to go in one of two directions. Some of us want to deny the sin, or we expect God, we create a God in our own mind who overlooks that sin. He's a God of love. He's not too concerned about such things. What that does, as you well know, it, it diminishes sin. It belittles God. It elevates us. Beware of any worship service. Beware of, of any mindset 
that you have when you're worshiping. Any mindset that diminishes sin, belittles God, elevates us, it's not worship. Now, others gravitate another direction. They, they feel the predicament of sin. They feel conviction, but they try themselves to atone for it by, by working harder, by doing better, by punishing themselves. We've been through the drill many, many times. Even Christians, right? I, I just can't lift my hands. I can't sing today because of what I said to my wife this morning. Can't make it to the meeting today. Mm. No, not after what I've done. You, we could unpack both of those, but you see both options are folly. Here, here's what's critical. In forgiving Isaiah, God does not set aside his holiness. He does not become less than God. To set aside his holiness would be to become not God. He provides a sacrifice for Isaiah. He applies that sacrifice to Isaiah. And only because he does, only because he does, can Isaiah hear this pronouncement, your guilt is taken away and your sin is atoned for. Are there any sweeter words a sinner can hear? <laughs> your guilt is taken away. Your sin is atoned for. Specific sins forgiven. Inner corruption taken away. Well, there's no reality in this text more relevant for our lives, more relevant for our worship than this. We, we must see, we must perceive, we must, we must grasp God in his holiness if we are to know him in his grace. And, and if you haven't seen something, grasped something of God's holiness, his perfection, his, his purity, his awesomeness, his fearsomeness, his to use the old sense of the word, his terribleness. And in that spotlight, recognized your, your own blameworthiness and your own unworthiness and your own sin and your own rebellion, then I would wonder whether such a person has really understood the grace of God whether such a person has really grasped the glory of what God has done for us in Christ. There's plenty of songs that speak very familiarly with Jesus. Jesus, Jesus. I, I hear a lot of pastors, young pastors often saying, well, Jesus this and Jesus that and Jesus this. And that's fine. I'm not making... But it's, it's interesting that Paul doesn't speak that way. Biblical writers tend not to speak that way. It's not just Jesus, 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 Jesus. It's, it's Jesus Christ. It's the Lord Jesus. They haven't lost touch of exactly who he is. But when we, when we grasp 
something like Isaiah has, having seen our helplessness before God, our our culpability for scorning God, for for stiff-arming God, that the one who made us, the one who owns us, the one who created us to find joy in Him. And and then we we perceive, in light of that, our exposure to judgment, to to pure judgment and just judgment and and righteous judgment, not old-fashioned, but unimpeachable judgment. It, It can't be argued with. It can't be faulted. It can't be criticized. It's right. If God doesn't judge our sin, he ceases to be God. Yet, judgment over which mercy triumphed. Judgment executed righteously, but not on us, on a substitute. So it could be said of all who turn from their sins and place their faith in Jesus Christ, your guilt is taken away. And your sin is atoned for. What that burning coal did for Isaiah, what it points to and anticipates, Christ did in his death for us. It's at the cross where we see this this symphonic, this harmonious, this this glorious weaving together of of both God's holiness and His grace, His His holiness in pouring out righteous wrath on sin, vindicating His holiness, and yet His grace. For it was He who provided the substitute for you and for me. When when our eyes are opened and our, our dead hearts are awakened to see this, then then we'll be like Isaiah. We'll, we'll, we'll truly perceive God. We'll truly become worshipers of God. And that's what happens in the third part of Isaiah's journey. Thirdly, a response to God's grace. Verse 8. For the first time in this vision, God speaks directly. Again, he's, he's not locked up in heaven. He's not untouched by our dilemma. He has a mission. He has a mission to spread the news of his holiness and grace throughout the earth to deliver his people, to rescue sinners, to transform them so that the whole world would truly be filled with his glory and grace. And so God ponders rhetorically, Verse 8, whom shall I send? And look at the change. Verse 8b, here am I. Send me. Isaiah had been shamed in silence. His, his lips were unclean. Do you remember that? But, but now he's been forgiven. Now he's been cleansed. And so now he speaks. He was an intruder into this realm, but now he's a welcomed child. He was ready to die. But now he's ready to serve. Now, we need to be clear, we're not Isaiah, okay? We're, we're not canonical prophets. Don't think there's any here. Uh, our place in salvation history falls somewhere below Isaiah's. For most of us, I think. Um, there are aspects of this experience that are unique to Isaiah. Yet there is a pattern. There is a pattern here when our sin is removed and our guilty conscience is cleansed, we see glory. We are drawn 
to God. We are captivated by God. We are freed to approach God. We are unleashed into the service of God. In other words, we are unleashed into worship. For here is true worship. If I had to sum it up, I'd put it this way. Responding to the grace of God with adoration of God and service to God. I think that captures the biblical picture. Look at any description or picture or command uh, about worship in Scripture. And this is what you will find. We've mentioned this a moment ago. Worship is a response, a response to God, God in his reality, God revealed in his word, not our assumptions, not our intuitions. It's a response to his to his initiating revelation. But but we don't just approach God in his unshielded majesty as sinful creatures. We can only approach God by his grace. And when we experience that grace, we respond. We respond with adoration. We respond with joy. We respond with passion. And it's not just a song. We respond with consecration, with a life given to a God who has saved us. So we say, send me. We offer our bodies as living sacrifices, as Paul put it in Romans chapter 12. That's worship, responding to the grace of God with adoration of God and service to God. Everything changes when we experience the mercy and grace of a holy God. And this has everything to do with our gatherings of corporate worship. The most important distinction between ourselves and Isaiah is not our role, although that's significant. It's not our office, although that's significant. The most important difference between us and Isaiah is our location in salvation history. So as God's redemptive purposes unfolded, the revelation of God that Isaiah saw was made more explicit and and, and more clear and, and more personal. When the eternal word became flesh, the act of mercy that that Isaiah experienced with the coal touched to his lips reached its intended expression, its true effectiveness, its eternal significance. At the cross of our savior. A response to God's grace for us, brothers and sisters, on this side of the cross can now be made, which which is more fully informed and and more certain and, and more confident. Because we know something that Isaiah knew only in shadows, only in promises, only in precursors. And so with Isaiah six freshly in mind, I'd like to turn very quickly. We're not going to exposit it, but I want to turn very quickly to another text that also gives us a paradigm for relating to God. Turn quickly to Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10. Again, another text that gives us a paradigm for relating to God, but it's a paradigm that is informed by this unfolding of God's saving purposes in history Hebrews chapter 10. You can't fully appreciate Hebrews chapter 10 if you don't understand Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah chapter 6 gives us new eyes with which to see and read Hebrews chapter 10. So to Christians, to Jews, to Jewish Christians who were tempted by hardship and persecution and discouragement to to shriek back from Christ, to, to turn back again to the Judaism of their past. The writer reminds them of just what great and superior privileges 
that they have and the basis for those privileges. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. Here is really the, the fulfillment of Isaiah's experience, which, which gives us new eyes to view our own worship. As Christians, we aren't held at bay by God's terror and, and awesomeness that, that, that accompanies his, his unshielded glory. We have, as the writer of Hebrew argues, access what a word. Access. Access to God. And not a fearful, trembling, uncertain entry full of trepidation, wondering should we be here or not. No, it's a... The Bible says it. It's, it's boldness. It's, it's a holy boldness. We enter with confidence. And, and note where the access is to. To the most holy places, that the very presence of God in the heavenly sanctuary where his blazing glory is most fully revealed, where angels cover their, their face from God's ineffable holiness and they, they cover their feet, their creatureliness and unworthiness laid bare. It's the last place in the universe we should be bold. It's such a, a disorienting verse. Enter with boldness to the most holy places. You almost have to be a Jew to say, what are you talking about? You don't go boldly into the most holy place. But we can now draw near with confidence. We have as a present possession Full authorization. There's a subjective component to that boldness. We're, we're confident and there's an objective component. We have full authorization to enter. But now, through the lens of, of Isaiah 6, we, we don't, this isn't some sort of giddy frolic into the presence of God. We enter informed. We enter ever mindful of the realities that make it possible. How can we go in? It, it doesn't say go in and forget how. We go in very conscious of how. It's the shed blood of Jesus, the perfect ultimate sacrifice to which centuries of sacrifices pointed that secures for us. brothers. Oh my. Once for all. Forgiveness of sins. We do so mindful of the presence of Jesus 
before the throne as our great high priest, representing us, ensuring access for us, ever living to make intercession for us, ever pleading for us. And that then, verse 22, informs the way we approach with a true heart. We, we come sincerely to God with single-minded devotion. We come to God abandoning all of the false glories that, that compete for our hearts and seduce us. We, we come with a pure heart. We abandon those. So there's a way to come. We come with full assurance of faith absolutely confident in the sufficiency of Jesus' sacrifice, abandoning all hope in self, all hope in self-righteousness, all hope in my performance. I dare not trust the sweetest frame. I dare not. But wholly lean, like the Puritans used to say, just lean on God. Wholly lean on Jesus' name. Verse 22b, hearts sprinkled clean, bodies washed, inward, outward purity through the cleansing blood of Jesus. The same realities that Isaiah encountered, God's holiness, God's grace, our response, find their full realization and culmination when we draw near by a new meaning a previously unavailable new and living way that Jesus opened. And now, fully informed by the cross, we approach with greater clarity, greater certainty, greater assurance, greater gratitude, greater joy. That's why, friends, our worship Christian worship, new covenant worship is Christ-centered worship, is gospel-centered worship. That's why when we gather, as the topic of my talk was assigned, that's why when we gather, we gather around the gospel, we gather to rehearse the gospel, because we must never forget it is the gospel, Christ's person and work, that makes possible our worship. It is that gospel, Christ's person and work, that informs our worship. It is the gospel that sustains our worship. And so our worship must always account for, feature, explore, celebrate God's glory in Christ. Christ and him crucified and resurrected and ascended. Anything else, I mean, why else gather? Anything else, anything apart from this is, is dabbling. It's self, it, it, it can veer to self-congratulation. It. It's just dabbling. When we gather, we have no great worship is a response to God. We have no greater reality to consider, no greater reality to rehearse, no greater reality to celebrate than the gospel. There is no greater reality, no greater revelation to respond to. Nothing that shows us God more clearly, nothing that gives us more assurance, nothing that generates more hope, nothing that will more sustain us and the people we serve through temptation and discouragement and suffering. It's critical that we ask ourselves, as those who participate in worship, lead worship, pastors 
worship leaders, those involved in, in planning worship, those who, who lead singing, really all of us who worship, is the cross, that, that, that glorious marriage of holiness and grace, coming to undeserved sinners like, like you and me, bringing us to God, binding us to God, is that occupying our time and attention as we gather? Is that consistently placed before our churches? Are, are, are the songs that we sing, the songs that you choose, consistently setting forth, lifting up, exalting in, meditating upon, savoring, that most glorious display of God's character ever revealed in creation. The Psalms often celebrate the mighty acts of God. The cross is the mightiest act of all of God's mighty acts. It, the decisive moment which secured the very salvation we're singing about. Uh, <laughs> Are you preoccupied with our great high priest who is ever living? He is the only one who can lead us into the presence of God. You're not leading anyone into the presence of God. Our great high priest is the one who even now leads us into the holy of holies. The one who stands there with God, purifying our praises and prayers before the Father. Leading us in our singing. We're entering into the worship that already exists in heaven, are we aware of that? Are we laying that before our people? You can apply this in many ways. Continue thinking about your, your corporate worship. Be you in a setting that's more liturgical, more informal. All of those elements are, are meant to serve the glorious end of beholding God in the face of Christ. We do a call to worship in, in our meeting every Sunday. It's not a moment to sort of, hello, get everyone's attention, have people sit down, finally gather. No, it's a call to worship. We want people to be aware that, that God is gathering us for worship and that we now are coming with full assurance of faith because we have access by Jesus' blood. It's not a liturgical element. It's, it's a, it's a worship-preparing moment. Think about pastoral prayer. Oh, pastors, what an opportunity with all the important requests and intercessions we make to do so, informing everyone that we are coming Boldly before a throne of grace because we have a great high priest who sympathizes, who dispenses freely mercy and grace. There's pastors here. You're preaching. It's not a sequel to the worship. Worship leaders, that, that, that sermon that's coming after you, it's, it's not the sequel. It's the high point of the worship. When we're singing, we are addressing God. In the preaching moment, God is addressing us. And so, Pastor, you are the most important worship leader 
in your church. And so this applies to our sermons as well. Let us week after week, regardless of topic or text, give our people a glimpse of Calvary, bring them to reflect upon and be encouraged by the good news of the gospel. Leave them most aware, not of what they must do for God, but of what God has already done for them in the cross. Keep going through your meeting. Think of exhortations, receiving the offerings. Are those moments informed by the gospel? Do they draw attention to the gospel? We don't want in moments like that to sort of drift into rote or repetition or glibness or sort of a mindless informality. Those elements, too, can can breathe the air of joy and gratitude and grace that flow from the gospel. Everything we do is meant to, should be calculated to in our planning of our meetings, in our evaluation of our meetings. Let all of these elements weave together to help us see the glory of God in the face of Christ. I want to close by saying this. I I would imagine, knowing you, knowing those of you that I do, Most of us are conceptually in agreement with what I've been saying. That here's our temptation. It's not rejecting the gospel. It's, it's not replacing the gospel. We just forget. We forget the gospel's centrality. We forget the way it makes possible and informs and enhances our worship. We we, we get distracted from the gospel's purposes to exalt God and to edify his people. We we doubt the gospel's power. We we underestimate the gospel's potential to to cheer discouraged hearts and to refresh weary souls and to, to captivate wandering minds and to motivate apathetic Christians and to sustain suffering saints in the midst of excruciating pain and loss. We just forget, and so we look for other things that we think are going to satisfy. We think they're going to grab people's attention. It's nonsense. Nothing will captivate. Nothing will sustain. Nothing will edify. And nothing will glorify God And rehearsing the great realities of the gospel. Nothing satisfies us. We've got to be convinced about this. Nothing satisfies us. Nothing sustains us. Nothing strengthens us like like we heard last night. And beholding and considering and hearing and meditating and professing and singing and laying hold of and applying to our lives the compassion and mercy and grace of God that the gospel makes most prominent and most clear. If we would exalt God, fellow worshipers, we will do so no more genuinely by exalting his work in Jesus Christ. If we would behold God, as we heard last night, we will behold him no more vividly than in the face of Christ and Christ crucified. If we would respond to God in joy, in worship, in mission, 
then as we gather, we should rehearse, we should remember, we should rejoice, we should hold fast to the Son of God who loved me and delivered himself up for me. Among all that we do, may nothing displace the preeminence in our worship of Christ crucified and risen and exalted. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, the very words, the very privilege to call you Father. Lord, let it not roll off our lips in a glib, unthinking way. Lord, we, when we utter the privileged name, Father, may we remember your exaltedness, our unworthiness, and yet your grace. Father, I pray that the realities that we've observed in your word would be emblazoned on our minds, would captivate our souls, and would make the gospel of your grace in Jesus Christ more real, more sustaining, more satisfying, more strengthening, more, more glorious in our eyes. Father, I pray for every church represented here that by your grace, in days ahead, more and more, we, our, our assemblies, our meetings, our corporate life, our individual lives, Lord, would be captivated with an ever more clear grasp of your gospel, ever more joy in your gospel, ever more assurance from your gospel, ever more motivation to proclaim your gospel, Lord, that we might be truly be satisfied in you, that we might sing and that we might live more fully for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.